brought to you by CGTN Europe. I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. As the COVID-19 pandemic rolls on, many around the world are still stuck either indoors or forced to practice social distancing. And while this may keep us safe from the virus, it can have a tremendous strain on our mental health and well-being. Today on the Agenda podcast, we examine how COVID-19 has affected our hopes, fears and lockdown dreams. My first guest is one of the UK's most renowned anthropologists, University of Oxford professor Robin Dunbar. He explains how behavioural science might help slow the spread of the virus. Professor, how can behavioural science uh, perhaps slow the spread of COVID-19? Well, I think it's probably doing it in two ways. I mean, most of the uh, government advisors who are behavioural scientists really work on um, how people kind of believe and accept messages or instructions that, that uh, are co- conveyed to them by the government as a matter. How willing are they going to be to adhere to what the um, government is recommending? I think at the other end of the scale, which possibly has not really been taken into account at all is really the question of just what our social world actually looks like and who it is that we're interested in engaging with uh, on the one hand and how deeply emotionally deep those those uh, relationships with these people are which is really where I come from. What kind of behavior have you been witnessing as a result uh, of lockdown? that you didn't see before COVID-19? Well, you have to see this in the context of the fact that our social worlds are really extremely small scale. Um, We actually individually sit in the sort of centre of a series of expanding circles of friendship and family relationships, which include only about 150 people on average, somewhere between probably 100 and 200 are the sort of uh, inner and outer limits on that. You know, those people often tend to be scattered over quite wide areas, obviously particularly true of, I mean, half of your that social network of 150 people is actually family, extended family members. Um, and most of those will be kind of distributed around the country, if not around the continent. You know, you make a lot of effort to go and see them from time to time. And particularly that's important with friends, because if you don't see friends, uh, the relationship dies or decays, might be a better word, rather quickly, within a couple of months of dropping the frequency with which you see someone. Most of our friendship uh, circle, as it were, is distributed around uh, a, a wide geographical area. So what's then been interested is two things, I think. One is the fact that people have suddenly started to get together with other people in their street they, or even their village, forming little collectives who will go around and, and help the elderly out, make sure they're getting food and their medicines and all this kind of thing and making sort of communal arrangements um, to, to, to keep life uh, going. And the, the other thing is, uh, of course, um, if I'll, I'll use the Italian example, is, is all standing out on our balconies and singing Verdi arias uh, of an evening, um, which is 
another extremely important way of kind of bonding the communities and it's creating these little sort of sense of your street being a real community and i think that's both of these are, are sort of quite novel how long they will last after lockdown is lifted well however that's, that's another that, matter that, exactly <laughs> that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question now what i think will probably happen is that people will make a judgment about which relationships are now more important to them once we come out of lockdown. So what will almost certainly happen uh, is that initially there will be a little sort of upsurge of people getting together with their friends and family that they haven't seen for a while. What part does social media play in all of this? Is it a good part of recovery, of surviving the COVID-19 or not? It's not a good substitute, ultimately, for face-to-face -face interactions. I mean, we've done, and others have done research, looking at how good different media are for the quality of your friendships, as it were, how satisfied you feel with the um, interaction you've had with, with one of your friends. And there is absolutely no substitute for being able to stare in, literally into their eyes and grab them by, by, by their shoulders. There's something about that sort of physical presence that seems to be really important. Now, video channel media do better than text-based or even telephone uh, media um, because they give you that slight sense of being in the same room together. But the interactions, m my sense is, still have a bit of a sort of edge to it. They're, they're a little bit uncomfortable on, on, on things like Skype and Zoom compared to what they would be if you were physically uh, there in the same room. So you know, there is no substitute for, for, for face physical to face. contact. Yeah. Um, can behavioural science teach us anything uh, at all about how to survive lockdown and, and come out the other side a better person? You know, it is unquestionably stressful for people simply because we live in a social world. I mean, there, there are people who are going to find it a lot less stressful, and I think a lot of those are just writers, <laughs> professional journalists and novelists and scientists, dare I say, who spend a lot of their time locked away in a room on their own. The people who will struggle most are undoubtedly the very social people whose uh, natural social environment is down the pub and down the uh, uh, tennis club or whatever it may be and 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 just like being with people um, and I think the answer to that as with the answer with all these kind of stressful events in life is just call it and relax it's kind of mindfulness you know a, a little yoga in the morning or, or dare I say it a little Pilates by zoom um, uh, you know the sort of physical exercise in the sense of doing something like that with somebody else are actually quite good for people because the both the exercise and the synchrony with which you do these things so you're both doing exactly the same moves creates a sense of relaxation and contentment happiness with life all's well all's well with the world um, and are very important so that's my recommendation it'll keep you going Professor Robin Dunbar, many thanks indeed for joining us here on The Agenda. Since the coronavirus lockdown began, many of us have been having very vivid dreams. Google searches for weird dreams have doubled since this time last year. And to explain 
This phenomenon and what it means for our mental well-being is Dylan Selterman, a senior psychology lecturer at the University of Maryland. So, uh, Dylan, how do our dreams tie into our mental health? Good question. There are more than a few studies showing that dreams can predict mental health outcomes in several ways. When people dream about emotionally difficult situations they're in, for some people, this can lead to better mental health outcomes in the long run. This is well demonstrated with research by Rosalind Cartwright, who studied people going through divorce and depression. When they dreamt about their ex-partners, having those dreams predicted better mental health for those people. So, when we do we dream more when we have a problem in our everyday life? Sometimes, yes, and sometimes it can be because of changes in our sleep patterns, but sometimes our minds are just trying to help us cope with situations, and so we, we might remember our dreams more. Whether the total number of dreams increases is actually not uh, clear. OK, so we, we may or may not be having more dreams, but we're certainly, if uh, uh, all the research we've done is true, be seem to be having stranger dreams during lockdown. Well, it could be because our minds are just more active in these periods where we're trying to deal with more new situations. Um, when we are asleep, this is a chance for our minds to safely simulate all kinds of experiences, including events that we've been through before and ones we might potentially face when we, when we wake up. So um, we mostly dream about people, especially people that we know and we're close with. And so dreams might be simulations that can help us prepare for circumstances, but mostly they reflect our approach to social relationships with other people. So to your question about dreams during lockdown and having you know, more vivid dreams and remembering them more, it's probably because we can't interact with people the way we used to, and so we have to adjust to that. Well, an extension of that uh, is that some people are having weird dreams um, because social distancing rules mean that people are worried and they're more worried about other people and they see other people as a threat to them. Absolutely. Yeah, we have to adjust. It's a new world now. So our dreams are trying to help us navigate this new world. A lot of people are having dreams um, about the challenges of social distancing and avoiding germs. I have personally had those dreams myself. Uh, so it's, it's not surprising at all to hear that so many other people are having them too. Now, we know that dreams are, this is the description, the official description, a reflection of what we've done in the day. But your research is different, isn't it? Your research suggests they aren't just reflective, they can also determine our actions. Is that right? In a way, yes. My research has shown that when people have a bad dream about their significant other, uh, a romantic partner, for example, a dream that might contain some infidelity or jealousy or betrayal, then when they wake up, there's more conflict with the significant other during the day. And this is independent of the previous day. So there's something about the dream that plays a unique role in that experience. Some people have also not just been dreaming, they've been having nightmares. What, what, what causes the, the, the nightmares? I mean, the strong feelings of fear, terror, distress, anxiety. When does a dream turn into a nightmare? Sure. There's a fine line between, I guess, regular dreams and nightmares, mostly because the average dream contains more negative emotion than positive emotion anyway. So lots of dreams that would normally not be classified as nightmares could be considered nightmares by that perspective. 
Um, that being said, nightmares can reflect things we're anxious about. They can also reflect mental illness. Uh, dreams don't necessarily turn into nightmares, but they likely start out as nightmares. And this can also perhaps be a way of helping us to cope with things that we are trying to deal with and prepare for. Um, if your mind is going through some negative things while you're asleep, it's a safe way to practice and rehearse for dealing with that thing when you're awake. So that leads me to my last extremely non-scientific question. Uh, in terms of, are dreams a way of clearing the brain of rubbish? Perhaps. If dreams are simulations that are meant to prepare us for important situations we might face later on, then the dreams need to reflect priorities that are important to us. So our minds might be going through a filtering process like pay attention to this and forget about that. It's important to remember that most of the information we get during the average day, like the people you pass by on the street, is completely forgotten. I mean, you probably don't remember exactly what you ate for lunch on a Tuesday eight months ago. But if you remember some details about that time, it could be that dreams played a role in that. Dylan Salterman from the University of Maryland. Sleep well and many thanks for joining us on the agenda. Thanks. You as well. The lockdowns around the world have led to millions of people being shut in at home, unable to go about their normal lives and, quite frankly, becoming increasingly bored. But might that actually be a good thing? Well, joining me now is Dr Sandy Mann, senior psychology lecturer at the University of Central Lancashire and author of the books The Upside of Downtime and The Science of Boredom, amongst many others. Uh, Sandy, why do you think that boredom is such a creative force? Well, uh, I know boredom is a creative force because I've done the research. And in fact, I've actually done a mini version of lockdown um, near my university in Preston in, in the UK, uh, where we've got people actually into a series of uh, isolation cubicles. Uh, and we've done the research. We've got people really bored. We've looked to see what happens when people are really bored. And we find that it actually makes them more creative. So we know this happens. And the key to that creativity when you're bored is to let your mind wander, to daydream to mind wonder and that's a real key to creativity so this period of lockdown that we're all experiencing all over the world could turn out to be our greatest period of creativity in the whole history of mankind that's a very big statement Sandy. i mean I sort of, um, what sort of creativity well, the research that I've done has shown that we're much better at problem solving, we're much better at coming up with creative solutions to problems if we've had a period of boredom first. So it's all sorts of creativity and we're seeing it now. It's absolutely amazing to see the creativity bursting forth from people when you look at uh, what people are doing with their kids during lockdown, homeschooling, business ideas. I mean, I'm actually a therapist as well as a university lecturer. Uh, and all the things I'm doing now, they said couldn't be done. A month ago, we couldn't do them. I couldn't deliver therapy online. It couldn't be done. I couldn't attend training online. We couldn't teach online. Now it's all being done. We're doing things that they said couldn't be done. And that's because we're coming up with creative solutions to problems that we didn't have before. But we can see the world differently. And I don't know if we'll ever go back to how we were before in, in all its entirety. I certainly hope not. Uh, it, but does that only apply, Sandy, to, to certain types of people? What about people who suffer from anxiety or depression? 
some people are much more adversely affected than others, uh, depending on things like resilience and, like you say, um, mood and anxiety and depression. Um, but what I'm advocating is that we can use this. So even people who are suffering from low mood, anxiety, and of course, there's an awful lot of anxiety. Uh, and I'm not trying to dismiss that or belittle that. Um, and there's a lot of terrible things going on. But what I'm trying to say is that there are some positives in every situation. And I think it's a human need and it's human nature to try and get the positives where you can from even the most dire of situations. So even people who are suffering from anxiety or depression can utilise this experience and, and, and try and glean the positives from it. It's a bit like sort of what we call cognitive reframing. It's seeing things differently. It's trying to um, get the, the positives, as I say, out of a very difficult situation. What sort of uh, advice would you give to people then so they can kick-start or get their, their creative juices running? So this is really important, uh, and this is a real key, because it's not just about being bored and going on the internet and trying to swipe and scroll your boredom away. What we really need people to do to maximise this is to let your minds wonder to daydreaming. This is the real key. This is what my research has shown is the real key to getting that creativity, getting, getting your creative juices flowing. So wherever you are in the world, um, we're all in lockdown. Some people have more freedom than others, but we can all look out the window. We can all stare at the ceiling. If we're lucky, we can watch the clouds. If we're lucky, we can watch the trees, but we can let our minds wonder. And that's the real key. So don't go on the computer. Don't try and swipe and scroll the boredom away. Just let your mind free. Be mindful. Just watch what the world go by or even just stare at the ceiling and let your mind find its own entertainment and its own creativity your mind will do the job you don't need to do anything else that's what your mind is, is programmed to do after millions of years of evolution it's programmed to find its own stimulation and it will that brings us to the end of another edition of the agenda you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes stitcher and spotify you can also find us on cgtn europe facebook Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.